the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Good afternoon and welcome. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show, the Thursday edition. James Blend is producing Clark Hilton Engineering, Dan Rice. He's given up the use of his office slash music room for the sake of the cause. And we're glad to have you with us. Coming up today, we're going to share a conversation with Dr. Robert Jeffress. His book was Courageous, 10 Strategies for Thriving in a Hostile World. Might come in handy these days. That's coming up in the second half of the first hour of today's program, and we'll also wind our way through uh, some of the day's headlines. We're also going to talk about the fact that there's another study confirming what most of us who are followers of Jesus already know, and that's attending religious services, as they're being described, can ward off depression. Now, attending services is a challenge right now, but uh, we'll share what the story, uh, what the report has to say. And of course, we can fellowship together, whether that's remotely or socially distanced on site. We still can gather together. Also want to tell you, Michael Joseph, uh, his Leading the Way program has produced a new book. It's releasing soon, Hope. For this present crisis. This month you can pre-order Dr. Yosef's new book, Hope for the Present Crisis. It doesn't release until the 2nd of March, so it's coming up, but you can pre-order your copy now and receive a pre-order bonus download, so it's worth doing it if for nothing else for that. Just go to kpdq.com, look for Hope for this Present Crisis to pre-order your copy, another great resource to help you navigate through these uh, very challenging times. Well, as of this morning, about 10.30 a.m., PGE reported that 103,000 customers are still without power, and Pacific Power reported 3,500, or rather 33 customers, 3,300 customers without power as well. Well, while more than 100,000 customers are still without power, and this is days after the storm and ice storms swept through the region, Portland General Election uh, Electric says it expects 90% of people who don't have it as of Wednesday afternoon, to have power by Friday night. Now, that may seem like an eternity because it's midday, um, early evening on Thursday. But for the other 10% of customers, sadly, PGE says it's going to take several more days due to significant damage and access challenges. So this was really a significant uh, storm. Well, the update comes as more than 3,000 people are working to restore power for PGE customers after that storm um, produced catastrophic destruction uh, to its system. Now, think about that for a moment, not the catastrophic destruction. We all are experiencing that, but 3,000 people are at work to restore that power. So kudos and thank you to those who are working um, tirelessly with uh, the system to try to restore what's been lost. PGE has restored power to nearly 567,000 customers since the start of the storm. And despite those efforts, still 103,000 customers were still without power as of this morning. Pacific Power also reported 3,300 customers 3,300, yeah, customers without power as well. Now, PGE Wednesday afternoon launched a storm info page that shows how many crews are working in each region in Oregon and what their uh, priorities are. So if you want to check that out, that might uh, help you just a bit. More than 6,400 PGE uh, power lines are still down, 6,400. 
Portland Fire and Rescue urged people to only call 911 when these uh, downed power lines are arcing, sparking or having caused immediate danger. They are themselves very dangerous, so be very careful. Oregon Governor Kate Brown said on Saturday that the uh, she declared a state of emergency due to the severe weather and the power outages. The state of emergency I declared on Saturday will ensure that all necessary state resources are available on the ground to help Oregonians impacted by this winter storm. Four people, as I mentioned yesterday in Clackamas County, have died from carbon monoxide poisoning during the winter storm, so that is a danger to consider. Deputies reported six adults in Gladstone got carbon monoxide oxide poisoning after using a generator in an enclosed area. Apparently, those six uh, survived. The sheriff's office said it's important that people don't use generators inside their homes because of the carbon monoxide danger. Deputies also said people shouldn't use alternative heating sources, including batteries, camp stoves, and cook type uh, cooktops rather inside their homes. So keep that in mind for safety's sake. Well, electricity is one thing, but tens of thousands of people are still without Internet access following the weekend snowstorm, the ice and so on in Oregon. And Comcast says that it could take a few weeks for some people to get back online. Well, at the peak of the damage, Comcast spokesperson Amy Kiter said more than 200,000 customers lost Internet service. That was down to about 76,000 customers so Wednesday morning, with the number shrinking as crews made repairs. CenturyLink, Zipply Fiber also reported uh, service interruptions. And many ongoing utility and power outages are linked to these internet issues. If poles are down, it's very uh, likely your internet service is also down. She said internet providers have to receive clearance from the power companies, such as Portland General Electric, to work on utility lines. So they are working in tandem, but it's a challenge. With so much storm damage to fix, these crews have a lot on their plates. Some areas are going to uh, come back really quickly. Some areas are just going to take some time. Uh, Laura Mitchell, Mitch, uh, rather Marshall, is a second grade teacher. She lives in Oregon City. She lost power and internet days ago. She's still waiting for service to return. In the meantime, according to the uh, Oregonian, she can't reach her students who are um, online learning. Now, I know kids have been out of school for several days because of power issues, but this particular teacher who's anxious to connect with her students says it's depressing. COVID wildfires, the storm, it's kind of getting to me emotionally. Keep that in mind for a lot of your neighbors. This is really an additional struggle that might put them at the end of their tether. Um, pray for one another, serve one another as much as you can, and uh, let's let's buoy one another up. Maggie Kelly with the Estacada School District shared that sympathy for people in the community. A lot of us are local. We're going through the same challenges. Estacada School District is encouraging impacted families to focus on basic needs first before they try attending classes again. Some students are going to return to what they're calling hybrid in-person learning this week. Others who lost power or internet connections are invited to use internet hotspots on campus and in school parking lots. The district is also delivering meals that don't require power to cook or refrigerate. These are the same things that uh, uh, we witnessed uh, with teachers and staff doing during the wildfires. Meanwhile, power and Internet repairs continue, but at a pace that may be rather challenging. Meanwhile, the wife of one of the linemen who you might see um, at the end of a pole or a tree or whatever they're doing to try to make repairs is asking for compassion for those who are working to restore power in the Portland metro area. I think for our culture today, we specialize in, we elevate impatience as if it were a virtue. Here's an opportunity for us 
to care for one another as we struggle without the things that we require and are used to, but also those who are trying to assist us in that restoration. Sarah Andrews, uh, who is quoted, I believe, also by the Oregonian, says thousands of linemen are working a dangerous job and getting no appreciation. The spouse of one of those thousands of men and women working to restore power across the region is pleading for patience and understanding. The linemen power the world honestly, says Sarah Andrews. Uh, Andrews, rather, if uh, it wasn't for them, we wouldn't be where we're at. That means many of us with our resources restored and being restored. She last saw her husband three days ago. So she's faring this on her own. She says he's bouncing around the Portland metro area trying to get the lights back on. She's been on pins and needles. Uh, He can't get hurt really, or rather he could get hurt really bad. And I wouldn't know until I get a phone call from one of the power companies because I'm down for his emergency contact. When your phone rings, you're constantly wondering, okay, is he okay? Is everything okay? Did everything go okay? So much runs through her uh, mind when her husband's on the job because it's so dangerous. And that's another element we may not think about. This is really dangerous work that they're doing. Travis Airy, who is a local 125 IBEW union worker, explains the dangers go well beyond working with energized wires. Ice and snow has a huge factor of weight and load that if you're not watching that, if you're trying to restore, you could end up having someone hurt on a simple application. It's uh, everything, slips, trips, falls. Uh, He says the linemen are uh, sometimes working in awful conditions and on little or no sleep. It depends on the job. They won't pull off uh, a job if they're close to restoring. So many times it goes past 16 hours. If anybody understands that, it's Andrews. Her husband has been working around power lines for more than a decade. She says often he gets no appreciation. This time, she says, it's no different. I'm seeing a lack of appreciation. It makes me sad because they're out there working their, well, backsides off for us to have our power. She's hoping those without power can show a little compassion for those working to restore it out in the elements. I get it's, uh, I get it. It's inconvenience, but these guys are putting their lives on the line, just like all the other first responders, she said. So do keep that in mind. If you know someone doing the work, be sure to say thank you uh, or reach out um, to these utility companies. And if possible, I know they're swamped right now, or perhaps once the crisis has ended, extend a thank you and a little gratitude to those who did it for us. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show on this Thursday afternoon. Coming up in our next couple of segments, we'll share an interview with Dr. Robert Jeffress, Courageous 10 Strategies for Thriving in a Hostile World. And don't we need strategies for how to navigate all of this and to do so in a way that is Christ-honoring? Uh, we're going to get to the fact that there's some Oregonians who have been fully vaccinated and yet tested positive for COVID in just a moment. But I want to make sure you are aware of the Deeper Faith Alaska Cruise 2021 with Alistair Begg. Laura Story is going to be on the cruise as well as Michael O'Brien. It's going to be a great time. And it was hard to imagine right now enjoying an Alaskan cruise. But mark your calendars August 28th through September 4th of this year. As I mentioned, you can join Alistair Begg, Laura's story on the Deeper Faith Alaska tour. It's a cruise. You can dine with friends. Imagine that. Explore beautiful parts of Alaska. And it is beautiful. Enjoy a refreshing experience and teaching from Alistair Begg with Truth for Life and music from Michael O'Brien. Register at kpdq.com and look forward to something that will be edifying, breathtaking, 
and uh, worth the price of the ticket. So check that out at kpdq.com. Well, four people in Oregon have tested positive for COVID-19, even though they've uh, been fully vaccinated and enough time has passed for their second doses to become fully effective. That's according to state public health officials. That was last Friday. They made the announcement. Well, the news makes Oregon one of the first states in the nation to identify so-called breakthrough cases where people who are considered immune have now been sickened with mild cases of the disease. Now, the mildness of it might reflect the fact that they've been vaccinated, but state epidemiologist Dr. Dean Seidlinger, he noted that the breakthrough cases weren't unexpected, given that both the Pfizer, BioNTech, and Moderna vaccines are thought to be close to 95% effective. Noted 5%, not so much. He says, I anticipated that more states will be reporting more numbers of breakthrough cases as they have more people who are fully vaccinated. This was in a news conference again on Friday. Seidlinger added that no vaccine is 100% effective at preventing disease and that people should still get vaccinated because both vaccines are safe and highly successful at preventing severe cases and death. But even so, Friday's revelation raises some pretty important questions about the effectiveness of the vaccines. Were these four Oregonians simply an expected mathematical outcome, or do these cases expose a weakness in the vaccines against preventing infections by variants first identified in the UK, South Africa, or Brazil? Well, Dr. Seidlinger believes the former is more likely true. Out of an abundance of caution, he said the state is in the process of doing genomic uh, sequencing, let's pronounce that correctly, of samples taken from the four people. Results should be available next week. But it is an interesting example of what to expect when you have mass vaccinations, or at least that's the goal, and how individuals respond to that vaccination. Well, Governor Kate Brown issued a statement on the return to in-person instruction Uh, today, and it reads like this. Well, it doesn't read like this. This is it. She says, eight weeks ago, I directed the Oregon Department of Education and the Oregon Health Authority to put more schools on track to return students to in-person instruction with a focus on our youngest learners. Since then, thanks to the incredible work of our superintendents, school board members, educators, parents, and community members, Oregon has more than doubled the number of students learning in person to 116,000 749. Now, I don't know if that number includes public and private schools uh, and in what areas, but she goes on. Starting next month, that's March, even more school districts across Oregon will begin returning elementary school students to the classroom for hybrid instruction, including our second largest school district, Salem-Kaiser, with over 17,000 elementary students. By the end of April, she says, most elementary students in Oregon will be learning in classroom again. That's April, May, June, they're done. Just saying. The governor went on to say, I'm thrilled to see so many of Oregon's school districts and teachers working hard to help return our students to the most effective learning environment, in-person, personalized education. Now, no, we're not talking about high school students in any of this. Now, middle and high school students must get the same chance, she says, so that all students have the opportunity to benefit from in-person instruction, regardless of the community in which they live including high school. It's been almost a year since most Oregon students have set foot in a classroom and they're suffering. The social, emotional, mental, physical, and academic impacts of distance learning on our students uh, have been well-documented and much has changed since last March. But at least she is acknowledging the health benefits, if you will, 
of students in the classroom. Oregon is committed, uh, committing robust state and federal resources for our schools, including our supplies of Abbott Binax Now rapid tests for on-site testing to get students back into classrooms. We're utilizing $500 million in federal relief to implement safety standards and buy personal protective equipment for students and staff. All educators who want a vaccine will soon be fully vaccinated. I hope that's true, the soon part anyway. The science is clear, the governor goes on to say, with proper health and safety protocols in place, there is very little risk of COVID-19 transmission in schools. She's following the science. As districts implement the more than 160 health and safety protocols outlined in Oregon's Ready Schools, Safe Learners Guidance, uh, we can reopen our schools, buildings in a way that protects students, staff, and our communities. Now, again, she's talking about March, April, for reopening. When I made my announcement in December, many thought in-person elementary uh, was far beyond reach. At the height of our winter surge, COVID-19 case counts were high and hospital capacity was threatened. Since then, thanks to the smart choices of Oregonians, our case rates, hospitalizations, and deaths from COVID-19 have steadily declined. And even our largest school districts, including in the Tri-County area today, meet or exceed Oregon's at advisory school metrics for hybrid in-person learning. Our students only grow up once. We cannot let the school year end with the class of 2021 never having set foot in Oregon high schools. I know that some have had their doubts, but we can do this by continuing to work together. It is within our power to provide every Oregon student the opportunity for in-person instruction this school year. So that's got to be encouraging. In the state of Oregon, there is an effort and work moving toward ultimately putting these students back into the classroom. Now, are we talking about daily? Are we talking about hybrid? Are we talking about every other day? We don't exactly know, but the governor seems to be moving in the right direction to provide for Oregon students what they so desperately need, and that is in-person instruction. So kudos to the governor for making this statement, and we'll continue to follow the progress of what actually happens in those classrooms. So we're looking forward to that. Well, continuing to look at the news outside of our fair state, President Trump hailed Rush Limbaugh during an appearance on Sean Hannity's program on Fox News. The former president joined him on, uh, well, last night to remember the conservative radio host who died at age 70 after a long battle with lung cancer. Now, it may be difficult for those of you who hadn't followed his career for the last, what, 33 years to really uh, grasp the significant impact he has had on the industry. But President Trump reflected on his decision to award Limbaugh the Presidential Medal of Freedom during the State of the Union address that was last February, just days after the icon, the conservative radio icon announced his stage four lung cancer diagnosis. It was an idea that we had that a lot of people suggested, frankly, a lot of great people in our country, largely Republican, the president said to host Sean Hannity. I was an amazing or rather it was an amazing night because the Republicans went wild and the Democrats sat there, but they all respected Rush. I'm not sure that's true. I think they had to respect his talent and the impact he has had on the course of the country and the industry, even if they disagreed with him. Well, the former president met Rush Limbaugh after announcing his 2016 bid for the Republican nomination. According to Trump, the two connected instantly, bonding over their love of golf, mutual commitment to conservative values. I got to know him right after coming down the escalator to announce my candidacy. Rush, by the way, was one of the few who took him seriously. That was in July of 2015. He was there right from the beginning, revealing that he would regularly check in with Limbaugh on the state of his health. There's been a lot of trolling um, with regard to the 
death of Rush Limbaugh. And I, I don't think I'm going to have time at this point anyway to cover this, but I want to talk a little bit at some point why we're taught to not speak ill of the dead, um, which I think is very timely given the current situation. But we'll get to that another time. Coming up, we'll hear from Dr. Robert Jeffress. He's the author of Courageous, 10 Strategies for Thriving in a Hostile World. He'll join us. And then at the uh, second hour of the program in the five o'clock hour, we'll cover the day's headlines and continue to wind our way through what's going on. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, in an increasingly secular culture, Christians feel pressured to waver on their deeply held beliefs. Well, in the uh, new book, Courageous, 10 Strategies for Thriving in a Hostile World, best-selling author and pastor, Dr. Robert Jeffress, he provides Christians with 10 strategies to courageously live out their faith in today's hostile anti-Christian environment. He says it's easy to get stuck in survival mode, and he writes, but the life that God calls us to is much more. In his book, you'll find practical tips on how to have courageous faith in the culture that is opposed to God and his truth, as well as the biblical answers encouragement and hope you'll need to thrive in your own personal struggles. He applies 10 survivalist strategies to the Christian faith that you will find very helpful. Well, Dr. Robert Jeffress is senior pastor of the 14,000 member First Baptist Church in Dallas, Texas, and a Fox News contributor. His daily radio program, Pathway to Victory, is heard on more than a thousand stations nationwide, and his daily television program seen on thousands of cable systems and stations in the U.S. and in nearly 200 countries around the world. Known for his bold biblical stands on cultural issues, he joins us today to talk about his latest salvo, Courageous, 10 Strategies for Thriving in a Hostile World. Dr. Jeffress, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, great to be back with you, Georgine. Thanks for having me. Let's talk about some of the challenges that we face as Christians today. I mean, it's not difficult to identify a few of them, but let's just begin there. What are some of the things that challenge us that are unique to mm-hmm. our time Uh, that might uh, tempt us to shrink back. You know, C.S. Lewis had a great quote. He described this world as enemy-occupied territory. And that's really true, Georgine. I mean, when you think about it, as a Christian living in this culture, we've got incoming from every direction. I mean, we have attacks coming from without. I mean, a, a, a culture that's increasingly hostile toward the things of God. We have attacks from within us. We have at least the residue of an old sin nature that pulls us away from God. And if those things weren't enough, we have attacks from below. We have a very real adversary, Satan, who does everything he can to destroy what's important to us in life. And uh, I think in spite of all of these attacks, God has given us everything we need, not just to survive, but thrive in this world. And what I've done in this book, Georgine, is I've taken uh, the 10 survival tactics that survivalists say you need to use if you're in a plane crash or an avalanche or an earthquake. Things like don't panic, uh, gain situational awareness, remember your training, and I've applied them to the Christian life so that we can do more than just survive. We can thrive amidst the challenges that bombard us every day. Let's talk about what it means to thrive. I think many of us, we can, okay, we have a vision of surviving. We can just last until, you know, our time is up. But describe for us what thriving looks like uh, when you're serious about your faith and you are applying what Scripture has to say about the challenges that we face and Jesus promised we would face. 
You know, my old professor Howard Hendricks used to say that too many Christians look like the cover photo for the Book of Lamentations. I mean, they just go around, <laughs> you know, sour face or defeatist, and oh, I hope I can just crawl across the finish line one day and make it toward heaven. That's not how God wants us to live. He wants us to do more than endure. He wants us to enjoy this life that he's given us. And, you know, I think about the example of Jesus. Hebrews 12 says, we keep our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. He didn't crawl to the cross. He wasn't defeated. He marched triumphantly to the cross because of the joy that was beyond the cross. And that's how I think God wants us to live, uh, Georgine, in this world. Not happy. That's a superficial emotion. That's not possible all the time. But joy is that quiet confidence that God is in control of the world at large and of our world in particular. Now, there are some among us in this challenging time who have decided that thriving simply means keep your head down, uh, don't talk about your faith, don't engage in any um, controversy, don't express your Christian life at all, and and just wait. Is that an acceptable position to take, and is that a a proper uh, posture to be in to describe as thriving as a believer, as a follower of Christ? No, it's not. And frankly, it's the reason our culture is in the shape that it's in right now. When I look at what's happening in America, uh, it's not, I don't blame non-Christians for that. I mean, why blame non-Christians for acting like non-Christians? It's the church that has lost its saltiness, its distinctiveness. Christians who have not lived out their faith, that are the blame for the reason we're in the shape we're in right now. And I really think it's time for Christians to stand up and to speak out. And I'm hoping that this book, Courageous will help us do that. You know, Georgine, I have this particular persuasion. I mean, I think what we're experiencing as a country right now is just a respite, a pause. Yes, we're in a semi-faith-friendly environment, but I believe when the left regains control of this country, and they will regain control of this country, there's going to be an onslaught against Christians and the Church of Jesus Christ like we never imagined. It's not going to be incremental. It's going to be immediate and intense. And I wrote this book, Courageous, to help prepare Christians for what I believe is going to be a real time of persecution in this country, and for parents to use these principles to try their children and grandchildren about how to stand up and be courageous. Now, we shouldn't be surprised that there's a challenge coming. In fact, Jesus warned his followers that they would face tremendous uh, opposition. What encouragement does he share in Scripture as we anticipate things heating up in the near future? Well, John sixteen thirty three. Jesus was very honest with his followers. He said, in this world, you will have tribulation. Jesus never painted a picture of Christians being exempt from problems. In fact, he said being a Christian guarantees problems. In this world, you will have tribulation. But then he added, take courage, for I have overcome the world. And I think, you know, that's the balance. We need to be realistic about the challenges we face, but we also need to remember the end of the story, that in the end we win. I'm preaching through Revelation right now, verse by verse, and there's some awful things that are going to happen. The short-term forecast is dark and stormy, but the long-term forecast is bright and sunny. Absolutely. Well, let's talk about a few of the 10 survivalist strategies that you share. You mentioned one of them a moment ago, and the first is not to panic. I think that's our first instinct, to panic. Um, how can believers apply this strategy when things start to uh, to heat up or when they start to turn a, in a direction that will clearly challenge uh, their faith? 
you know, when faced with a challenging situation like an earthquake or avalanche, 80% of people freeze. They just don't know what to do. And that's a natural reaction when bad things happen to us is to freeze. But, you know, Joshua had his own challenging situation. He was told he was going to fill the sandals of Moses, the great leader. He panicked. And remember God's word to him in Joshua 1, do not fear, do not be dismayed, for I am with you wherever you go take courage. And you know, Georgina, a young mother was reading this chapter just a couple of weeks ago, and while she was reading the chapter, she got the news that she had cancer and only three or four months to live. And she wrote me and she said, you know, my first inclination was to panic. What would happen to my children, my husband? But then I remembered God's promise, I am with you wherever you go, take courage. Absolutely. Another of the strategies that you uh, write about, these survivalist strategies, is to take inventory. What should we consider in taking inventory, and how should believers uh, go about this to help them thrive in uh, difficult times? You know, I I start each chapter of Courageous with a real-life survival story that illustrates that principle. And in this one, I tell the well-known story of Apollo 13. Ron Howard made the great movie about it. And you know, those astronauts were on board. They didn't have the right air filter. All they could use was what they had. So they took their available inventory, a bungee cord, a couple of plastic bags, and a couple of old socks, and built what they needed. Well, you know, when we take inventory of what God has given us to make it through this life, He's given us much more than a bungee cord and some old socks. He's given us two things, the armor of God. And I talk about that from Ephesians 6. We know it well, the breastplate of righteousness, the shield of faith. But there's another resource that Christians don't think about that often, and that is the people of God. They're a great resource. You know, God never meant for us to face these challenges in life by ourselves. Uh, They're strength in numbers, and that's why, Georgine, it's so essential that every Christian bind themselves to a local body of Christians in a church who will stand with them when those challenges come. Mm. We're going to continue our conversation, but I uh, do need to take a quick break. Again, we're talking with Dr. Robert Jeffress. His book is titled Courageous, 10 Strategies for Thriving in a Hostile World. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in just a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Continuing my conversation with Dr. Robert Jeffress, uh, author of his latest book, Courageous, 10 Strategies for Thriving in a Hostile World. One of the things I really appreciate about each chapter is it opens with a true story that illustrates one of the 10 survival tri- tips that uh, are critical to make it out of a life-threatening situation alive. And it helps us to... Uh, uh, to relate that situation to the one we may find ourselves in as we attempt to honor Christ uh, in some very challenging times uh, ahead. Now, oftentimes, Dr. Jeffress, Christians feel victimized by a situation or a person, but you encourage them to have a victor's mindset. First of all, what do you mean by that, and how do we get from victim to victor? Well, you know, uh, this isn't positive thinking mumbo-jumbo. The Bible says, as a person thinks in his heart, so is he. And, uh, you know, it's easy to fall into victim mentality when we face problems, adverse people, or circumstances, but we really need to have that victorious mindset. And I think a good example of that in the Bible is Joseph. I mean, think about all of the things that he went through, sold into slavery by his brothers, falsely accused of rape by his boss's wife, uh, unfair 
voluntarily sent to prison, forgotten by his friends in prison. I mean, Georgine, he could have been in therapy the rest of his life if he had wanted to. Instead, he chose to have a victor's mindset. And remember that great climactic scene when he was reunited with his brothers? He had the chance to exact revenge from them, but instead he said, And as for you, you meant it for evil, but God used it for good. And I think that's the essence of being a victor, to realize that God is bigger than the adverse people or the adverse circumstances we're in. That God is so big and powerful, he can take the worst things that happen to us and use them for our good and his glory. And uh, I, I think of Chuck Swindoll's words. He said, the older I get, the more I realize that life is 10% of what happens to you and 90% how you respond to what happens to yeah, you. Yeah, yeah. Now, what scripture passages have you found especially helpful uh, when you feel uh, backed in a corner? I think for many of us, we need to be saturated in God's word. We need to be studying. We need to remember what God's word said in order that we recognize our status as victors and that we can find um, the kind of help that we need when we feel backed uh, against the wall. You know, the essence, Georgine, of courage, I believe, is obeying God regardless of the consequences. Obeying God when we can't see what the consequences are going to be, obeying Him when people are threatening us, obeying God. And to me, the scripture that helps me center my life and focus on that is 2 Corinthians 5, 9, and 10. Paul said, therefore, we have as our ambition, whether absent or at home, to be pleasing to Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one of us may be rewarded for what we've done, whether it's good or worthless. And, uh, you know, Jesus said, don't fear people who can only destroy your body. I mean, that's the worst anybody can do to you is kill you. Instead, fear the one who is able to destroy the body and the soul. And I think when we live our life for that audience of one, it gives us the courage to obey God regardless of what's happening around us. Another of your chapters is titled Trust Your Training. It's easy to imagine that in a survivalist situation. And again, you provide a story that helps us picture that uh, scenario. But when we're facing opposition or challenge in our Christian walk, what training should we be trusting in and what's necessary for us to be prepared and equipped for those challenges that will inevitably come? You know, the story I tell is Sully Sullenberger, who miraculously landed that U.S. airplane on the Hudson River. And people said, how were you able to do that? He said, it was easy. I trusted my training. And I contrast that to the pilots of that Lion Air 737 a few years ago that was careening toward the ground, and the pilots spent their last few moments frantically searching the flight manual to discover what they were supposed to do. Listen, if you wait until that moment when the crisis comes to search the flight manual, you've waited too long. Everybody on that plane lost their life. And what I'm talking about trusting your training is – Trusting and putting God's word into your heart before the crisis comes. You know, Jesus did that in the wilderness, tempted by Satan. He didn't say to Satan, hold on just a moment while I, you know, unroll the scroll and see if there's something in Deuteronomy to help me. No, uh, he knew Satan wasn't going to wait. He had hidden God's word in his own heart that he would obey his heavenly father. If Jesus needed to do that, how much more do we need to do that? Mm. Another chapter that I think is really important is um, you encourage your readers not to celebrate their success too soon. Beware of celebrating the summit. 
Yeah. You know, mountain climbers will tell you that the most dangerous time of a mountain climbing expedition is not the ascent to the summit. It's the descent after they've reached the summit. It's then they tend to be fatigued. They tend to be careless. They tend to be overconfident. And that's when they're most prone to trip and to fall. Paul said the same thing. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. I mean, the fact is, if we successfully overcome a challenge, I'll guarantee you there's another one waiting around the corner for you. And that's why we need to stay close to the Lord, not only during the times of crisis, but even the times that we're out of a crisis. You write that all of the tools and training that you provide in your book are useless if your readers don't have one thing. What's the one thing that we have to have in order to confront the, confront the challenge of our day well? And, and that one thing is courage. Being ready to obey God regardless of the circumstances. And Georgine, that's something that we need to teach our children and grandchildren. Because the fact is, they're growing up in a culture that is much more hostile to Christianity than the one you and I grew up in. And I'm hoping uh, parents will use this as a, a, as a training manual for their children to develop courage. My friend Oliver North wrote the endorsement on the back, and he said, I've trained Marines for years in these survival tactics. It never occurred to me to apply them to the Christian life, but it's a must-read manual for Christians. And so I hope Christians will use this not just for themselves, but for their children and grandchildren. Your final chapter is uh, titled, Do the Next Right Thing. Um, Sometimes we're not certain uh, what course we're likely to find ourselves on. What's the next right thing, and how do we determine uh, what to do when we're in the midst of a challenge and aren't entirely certain of the direction or the outcome? are two great diagnostic questions to help you know what the next right thing is. You know, what's one thing you know you're not doing that God would want you to start doing? And second question, what's one thing you're doing right now that you know God wants you to stop doing? If you can answer those questions, you know immediately the next right thing for you to do. Your book is titled Courageous. What can we expect if we purpose to be courageous in the face of the challenges that are coming, the challenges that we currently face as well as those that are coming? Um, Because I don't want our listeners to imagine that if we face them with courage, then we're not going to have much to face, but that there are going to be challenges that may be very serious in the days ahead. Well, that's right. There's no guarantee that you're going to be exempt from problems. But what you will have as a result of uh, applying the truths of courageous is God's approval upon your life. And is there anything any better than that? Paul said at the end of his life, I fought the good fight. I finished the course, and I have kept the faith. Uh, The way to live uh, courageously is to obey God and know you have his approval. And after that, nothing else matters. Well, Dr. Jeffers, thank you so much for the book. We appreciate your ministry, and uh, thank you for the time that you've taken to be with us here today. It's always good to be with you, Georgine. Thank Thank you. you. Dr. Robert Jeffress, Courageous, 10 Strategies for Thriving in a Hostile World, and the book is published by Baker Books. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show Podcast. 
is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. We're going to continue to wind our way through some of the day's headlines. But before we do that, I want to remind you that every month here on KPDQ, we give away a new book from various authors. Did you know that? Well, this month we're giving away Fish Out of Water, written by Eric Metaxas. He is a reliable author, and he says, My search for meaning of life had an arc that I absolutely could not appreciate at the time. Everyone's story is different, but we are all on a journey, even when we don't know it. Well, this is truly the crazy story of how I found what I wasn't even sure existed. And yes, it's true. Well, you can enter to win a signed copy of Fish Out of Water online at kpdq.com. So, Check it out, and every month we have that option. So the website's a great place to visit from time to time because you never know what you might find there. But you do know that we're giving away a book, so there you have it. While the Cuomo administration is facing federal probes over the handling of the nursing home crisis, the FBI and the U.S. Attorney's Office in Brooklyn, New York, they have uh, begun an investigation into how the New York governor His administration, they handled the state's nursing home crisis during the coronavirus pandemic, according to a report yesterday. Well, that investigation is focused on top members of his uh, coronavirus task force, the Albany Times Union reported, and they cited a source with direct knowledge of the matter. Neither Cuomo nor any administration official has at this point been accused of any wrongdoing. Well, members of uh, the administration, Cuomo's task force, include New York State Health Commissioner Howard Zucker, and Secretary of uh, the Governor, Melissa DeRosa. The latter drew scrutiny this last month after she seemingly admitted the governor's team withheld information related to COVID-19 and the deaths at nursing homes. As we publicly said, the Department of Justice has been looking into this for months. We've been cooperating with them and we will continue to. That's a quote from Cuomo senior advisor, uh, Rich, as a party in a statement. Well, it wasn't clear whether as a party statement referred to the Brooklyn U.S. Attorney's Probe, which the Times Union described as in the early stages. Uh, The statement didn't specify whether Cuomo's office was in touch with the FBI or the U.S. Attorney's Office uh, and their officials regarding the fresh investigation. Well, a spokesman for the U.S. Attorney's Office in Brooklyn told the Times Union that he could neither confirm nor deny that an investigation was underway. So essentially, we know nothing. Uh, What we do know is he's under scrutiny and lots of people died in nursing homes in New York. There was an effort to cover it up. What happens next is the mystery. In other developments, Nikki Haley slammed the media and uh, President Biden for the uh, handling of the Cuomo uh, praise during a nursing home scandal. And Ted Cruz is calling for a congressional probe of the Cuomo nursing home scandal. Megan McCain torched the media's lack of meaningful coverage of the nursing home scandal, calling it journalistic malpractice. CNN uh, claims it reinstated their rule, barring Chris Cuomo from covering his brother as the scandal grows. Meanwhile, CNN's Chris Cuomo continues to uh, black out his brother's nursing home scandal, not covering it. Other MSNBC primetime hosts are also avoiding the cover. So we've switched in just a matter of days from being oversaturated with with, uh, coverage on particular stories to not covering consequential stories with significant fallout at all. Well, Texans weather and power crisis is threatening those with serious health conditions. One could certainly imagine at least 10 people have died and countless others are facing life-threatening conditions as Texans prepare to enter day four of frigid weather without heat or power. We certainly on this coast can relate. A growing concern is for those people in the storm's path with serious health conditions. Well, that's concerning not only for temperature, but also for people who are on oxygen due um, 
uh, need electronic devices for their health. Casey uh, Brindenthal, Comfort Homes Director of Operations, says she's very concerned for the vulnerable. In the Texas suburb of Richardson, a woman who relies on an oxygen machine had to be taken to a local hospital and then a dialysis center where the machine was charged according to the Texas Tribune. Conversely, carbon monoxide poisoning has become a major health concern. At least two deaths there have been reported. And in Houston alone, Texas' largest city has seen 300 carbon monoxide poisoning cases, according to the Houston Chronicle. The rise in cases has come about from people trying to stay warm in running cars and garages, barbecue pits, rather, and generators used indoors. Again, a caution And a warning to those of us on this coast who are facing similar circumstances that need to avoid uh, these means by which to try to stay warm. Well, the power problems have also impacted water pressure levels across the Lone Star State. An estimated 7 million people were told to boil their water or stop using it entirely as homeowners, hospitals and businesses grappled with low pressure, broken water mains and burst pipes. In other developments, long lines are forming at Texas grocery stores as the demand for food soars during this historic storm there. Uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez says the Green New Deal would have helped prevent the Texas blackouts. Frigid weather has ended more sports events in Texas and Oklahoma, as one might imagine, and Mattress Max has provided shelter to hundreds of Texans left without power from the storm. Bo Bergdahl is naming Donald Trump and John McCain and um, McCain as defendants in a lawsuit challenging his court martial. President Biden is being mocked for his claim that we didn't have COVID-19 vaccine when he took office. I'm not surprised that he's confused by that, but he made the statement after his vice president made the statement and was not questioned. Baltimore activists are suggesting paying killers not to kill. So is it pre-reparations? Is it bribery, reverse extortion? I'm not sure what to call that, but these are activists in Baltimore. A Tennessee boy, 10, has died after trying to save his sister who had fallen into a frozen pond. 10-year-old hero. An Oklahoma store owner has been arrested after firing shots to thwart an ongoing robbery. MSNBC's Nicole Wallace has ignored the Lincoln Project scandal after constantly hosting, praising the co-founders. They were, of course, anti-Trump. Naomi Osaka has ended up, uh, rather edged out Serena Williams at the Australian Open. It was bound to happen. Serena is a marvel, but she's also quite a bit older. Pfizer says the South African variant of COVID could significantly reduce the COVID-19 vaccine protection. The White House is ramping up its effort to tackle automotive chip shortages. And Tesla CEO Elon Musk, he's slamming Texas Energy Agency as unreliable. Vice President Kamala Harris has recently called multiple heads of state. That's a task that's normally done by the president. The vice president spoke with French President Emmanuel Macron on Monday, according to the White House. She expressed her commitment to strengthening bilateral ties between the United States and France and to revitalizing the transatlantic alliance, uh, readout said. She and Macron agreed on the need for close bilateral multilateral cooperation rather, to address COVID-19, climate change, and support democracy at home and around the world. They also discussed numerous regional challenges, including those in the Middle East and Africa, and the need to confront them together. There was no mention of President Joe Biden. Harris wrote in a tweet, we discussed COVID-19, climate change, supporting democracy at home and around the world, the regional challenges uh, at POTUS, and I look forward to working with President Macron to build a better future for our two countries, she wrote in a tweet. 
Uh, President Biden spoke with the uh, head of the French state back in January the 24th. Well, Rush Limbaugh, Limbaugh, of course, died yesterday at 70. His wife announced his death on his radio program. The Wall Street Journal editorial board said, We recall how bracing the Rush Limbaugh show was in its early, state, early days. rather. For decades, the airwaves have been governed by the Fairness Doctrine, a federal regulation requiring stations to balance controversial claims with contrasting views. The rule gave incumbent candidates and mainstream news outlets a near monopoly on public discourse. Ronald Reagan scrapped the Fairness Doctrine in 87 by 90 presidential campaign, the radio star's first name was known across the U.S., Limbaugh, uh, whose show ran on weekdays from noon to 3 p.m. East Coast time, was invaluable to the conservative movement to the 19, or rather, in the 1990s. He would spend an hour explaining supply-side tax policy or making the case for deregulation. Millions of Americans had never heard a coherent argument against the welfare state or Roe versus Wade until they tuned in to Rush Limbaugh. He played a numerous role. He played an enormous role in popularizing conservative ideas and policies and equipping those to articulate them. Uh, conservatives quickly went public, mourning the loss. Shockingly, many progressives Openly celebrated moments after his death uh, was announced. Professors were some of the worst offenders, and I wouldn't repeat what many of them had to say. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll take a quick break, and we'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, Governor Cuomo was being accused of threatening lawmakers, rather, who didn't back him. Ed Morrissey points out that Cuomo has begun threatening his Democratic allies to keep them from turning on him in the nursing home scandal engulfing his administration. And as mentioned earlier, the FBI is now investigating. John Fun points out that if the liberal media were fair, they would put out this as a kind of behavior they always decried of Trump. Until very recently, they've treated Cuomo with, quid, with kid gloves. CNN finally says Chris Cuomo is no longer allowed to interview his brother. A new study finds a link between social media and suicide among teen girls. The story is an interview with Dr. Sarah Coyne, a professor and researcher. Right away, she explains what we found was for girls only at about age 13, if they're starting at two to three hours of social media use a day, and that increases over time, over the next years, 10 years rather, this group has the highest level of suicide risk in emerging adulthood. So keep that in mind. Well, COVID cases continue to plummet, even though the CDC forecasters believed cases would grow through February. And the organization FIRE has put out a list of worst colleges for free speech. They list 10 colleges. They went out of their way to threaten students, student journalists, dismiss professors for protected speech, render a student homeless during a pandemic for his speech, and refuse club recognition for groups just because they of their viewpoint. You can check that out. Fire, check it out online. Their list of the worst colleges for free speech. The city of Chicago is looking into removing a Lincoln's, their Lincoln statue among four presidents in Major Lori Lightfoot's crosshairs. And Larry Elder has dismantled the reparations bill at, con- at a congressional hearing. He took advantage of his five minutes plus to show how completely able blacks are and have been for some time. He rattles off stats and facts at an amazing rate. It's something to behold. Joe Biden rightly disappoints uh, hard leftists on the minimum wage hike and student loan forgiveness. The back and forth continues within the party. And hypocritical Twitter allows grotesque hashtags to trend following Rush Limbaugh's death. I mean, he fits the narrative, so it's all right. Uh, language that they would not otherwise tolerate. 
An Israeli study found a 94% drop in symptomatic cases with the Pfizer vaccine. In the annals of the social justice caliphate, Antifa piled snow in front of a Seattle police precinct to keep them from responding to emergency calls. Thanks, Antifa. Meanwhile, Speaker Pelosi is demanding a 911-type commission on Capitol, the Capitol breach. The commission could satisfy Democrats who want to see Mr. Trump and others held to greater account for the event on the 6th of January when the former president was acquitted on Saturday in the Senate impeachment trial. Dan Crenshaw says, I never wavered in my condemnation for what happened on January 6th and the circumstances that led to it. It was a disgrace, but let's not pretend this commission is anything but a cynically motivated tool designed to wield the tragedy of January 6th as a political bludgeon. Byron York is among those in the media having a tough time getting answers from Capitol Police. Well, the Daily Wire has signed Gina Carano after she was fired for her conservative beliefs. Daily Wire wants her to produce and star in a film they're going to finance. Carano says the Daily Wire is helping make one of my dreams to develop and produce my own film come true. I cried out and my prayer was answered. Rich Lowry compares the firing of uh, to the blacklist that the left once loathed. Well, a bill has intru- been introduced to stop Congress members from using campaign funds to hire spouses. It's titled the Omar Act after Ilhan Omar, who paid her husband's consulting firm millions of dollars. From Congressman Mike Gallagher, loopholes that allow members of Congress to funnel campaign funds to their spouses are despicable and erode trust in our government. Minneapolis plans to spend $6.4 million to hire more police after many quit following the anti-police protests. While progressives call for abolishing police department, residents are frustrated as crimes have increased and response times have slowed. Nearly half of New York Times employees say they can't speak freely as the other half are demanding the heads of those who do. Holman Jenkins says, unfortunately, it's also a logarithm that if the paper in its most visible public decisions is flopping around like a gaffed grouper, everything is worse for those making the invisible daily decisions about how to cover the news without losing their careers. You can read more at the Wall Street Journal. Well, Parler says it's back online a month after getting forced off by big tech. Although, as the story broke, uh, the Parler website is still struggling and has a technical difficulty graphic at the top of the page if you want to check that out. Well, woke teachers have now put Shakespeare in their crosshairs. The truth is, nobody's safe. Lawyers are facing reprisal for representing Donald Trump. This is un-American, many argue. So you represented Trump? That question is unfairly haunting a number of the former president's lawyers. Well, because of his legal counsel to former President Donald Trump's constitutional scholar and law professor John Eastman, the former dean of the law school, um, no less, was pushed out of Chapman University, where he spent his entire very distinguished academic career. The same thing happened to Cleta Mitchell, a well-known and highly respected Washington, D.C. lawyer who had practiced with Foley and Lardner for decades. Well, now Michigan lawyers Greg Roll, Scott um, Hagerstrom and Stephanie Gentilla, who represented the Trump campaign in election litigation in the state, are being unfairly and unjustly targeted by disbarment by Governor Gretchen Whitmer and State Attorney General Dana Nessel. Now, my understanding was even scoundrels are entitled to legal counsel. When you politicize this notion that 
who you represents will determine whether or not you are permitted to practice law in your respective area, whether it's as a dean or as a, a trial lawyer, whatever your role might be, may come back to haunt others in the legal profession. You represent someone, a criminal trial, a heinous criminal, for example, are you now subject to having your credentials withdrawn, losing your position? If a political figure with whom you disagree uh, is is represented by legal counsel, does that mean then that in this country uh, there are those who can pick and choose who can practice law based on their political preferences? And that seems to be the case here. Well, these lawyers are finding themselves in the all too familiar position today of being punished for carrying out their professional duties to the best of their abilities, as required by the codes of conduct that govern all attorneys by representing a client who is politically unpopular with those in power. This is not just wrong, but it is, as I mentioned earlier, un-American, something we don't say lightly. The country is fundamentally based on the rule of law, which depends on protecting the ability and independence of lawyers to take unpopular clients and unpopular cases, something that's been done by brave principal lawyers throughout our nation's history. Well, this is one of those lessons that people on both sides of the political aisle selectively defend and selectively forget. Unfortunately, we've been here before. Now, Hillary Clinton was attacked for defending a child rapist as a court-appointed attorney. Lawyers who represented detainees at Guantanamo Bay were also attacked for defending terrorists. Some progressives deride prosecutors for enforcing uh, laws uh, they view as unjust, and some conservatives deride defense attorneys for defending dangerous or unsavory individuals charged with committing heinous crimes. And just about everyone derides divorce lawyers. But we are, as John Adams said, a nation of laws and not of men. That means that we insulate our justice system from the fickle whims of human nature with processes and procedures. Now, these are designed to minimize human error and to diminish the influence of the court of public opinion. That is clearly eroding here to our own peril. Now, we're just about out of time, but we'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I hope you'll stay with us. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show on this Thursday afternoon. Well, we have learned in the age of COVID that life expectancy has fallen by one year on average during the first half of 2020. That's according to preliminary data from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Average life expectancy dropped from 78.8 years to 77.8 years after the coronavirus pandemic arrived here in the U.S. Well, that reduction in life expectancy is the most significant drop since World War II when life expectancy fell 2.9 years. That was between the years of 42 and 43. That drop was higher among minorities with life expectancy for African-Americans falling 2.7 years and by 1.9 years for Hispanics. Again, the average 2.9 Now, what's really quite striking, we're being told by Dr. Kristen Bibbins-Domingo in these uh, numbers, is that they only reflect the first half of the year. So things could change. Uh, She's an epidemiologist and dean of the University of California. I would expect that these numbers would only get worse, she says. Well, the report marks the first time the CDC has released data on life expectancy from early records and more death certificates and other data may be received. Over 490,000 Americans have died of COVID-19 since the pandemic began. Additionally, a co-author of the CDC report said that drug overdose deaths also contributed to the higher death toll in 2020. 
Well, U.S. life expectancy rose in 2018 and 19 after a mid-decade dip stemming from drug overdoses during the opioid crisis. However, once the CDC released full data from all of 2020, once they do that, life expectancy could drop even further. I don't want to speculate any more on that, but it could happen. Meanwhile, the U.S. is now administering an average of 1.7 million vaccine doses per day, if you can get one. And the government is seizing over 10 million phony in 95 masks in its COVID probe, 10 million. Three North Korean military hackers have been indicted in a wide-ranging scheme. And the U.S. retail sales rebounded sharply in January, up to a seasonally adjusted 5.3%. Google and News Corp have a deal. Google will start paying for the use of News Corp's journalism in the U.S., U.K., and Australia. Meanwhile, Facebook will restrict users from sharing news in Australia. Well, there you go. A Baltimore activist has suggested paying killers not to kill only in Baltimore. Next thing you know, he'll be mayor. At least 30 Taliban terrorists uh, blew themselves up during a bomb making class. And stranger than fiction, pigs can play video games with their snouts, according to scientists. Good to know. On this day in history, 1546, Martin Luther, leader of the Protestant Reformation in Germany, dies in Eiselben. 1943, Madame Chiang Kai-shek, wife of the Chinese leader, addresses members of the U.S. Senate and then the House, becoming the first Chinese national to address both houses of the U.S. Congress. And finally, on this day in history, 1988, Anthony M. Kennedy is sworn in as an associate justice to the U.S. Supreme Court. Religion has been a source of comfort. It's been a source of support among believers for a very long time. It's often said that faith provides something to fall back on when everything else seems to fail us. Now a new study has investigated the complex relationship between religious experiences and mental health. This isn't really news, but it's the latest. Researchers from Westmont University have found attending religious services helps attendees avoid or stave off depression. Now that's the challenge these days because, as we all know, attending a service in person is a challenge. If you attend a larger church that has a facility where you can be socially distanced, you may have an opportunity to attend church in person. If you attend a smaller church um, with a congregation that exceeds social distancing, it may be more difficult. If you're more vulnerable to COVID-19, if you have uh, elderly members, there are challenges that go along with that. So actually meeting in one physical location may be challenging based on the church you would otherwise attend. What we do know is that there's technology today that has given us the opportunity to fellowship with one another in ways that just a couple of years ago would not have been possible. I know watching the service on television isn't the same as being there. Sitting in on a Zoom meeting isn't quite the same. Facebook Live, not the same. But we do have that opportunity to assemble ourselves for the purpose of worship. I think it's important to point out in view of the study that attending services, attending religious services, as the study refers to, for for me, church, isn't simply a matter of physical proximity. We attend church in a particular place, a church building, and that in and of itself generates whatever is uh, preventing those uh, who attend from experiencing depression. Uh, there's an element in church that <laughs> that most studies like this miss. We're actually going to worship the living God. So worshiping the living God in a corporate setting with others, I believe, is what 
helps us um, to avoid depression in circumstances like these. Now, there are those who have clinical depression and we're not singling people out who are experiencing depression. But as this study points out, we can stave off that kind of melancholy version of it uh, when we fellowship together. And when we are in close physical proximity to one another, that helps. But certainly the purpose for which we gather is the, um, is the reason that we are encouraged in our soul. Well, the study goes on. Unfortunately, not all of the project's findings follow the pattern. Study authors report that both life-changing spiritual experiences and a belief in divine leading and angelic protection has a connection to an increased risk of developing depression, particularly among men. Now, the researchers, uh, they tracked over 12,000 American adolescents all the way from their teen years to middle adulthood during the study. Those individuals were originally recruited for this project while attending high school, well, clear back in 94 and 95. Much of the research, they say, on religion and depression focuses on attending religious services and other commonly studied variables such as prayer or personal religiosity. We would say a relationship that is uh, living and active and pursued and maintained. The study author and associate professor of sociology, Blake Victor Kent, Blake Victor Kent is a PhD in the university release. Questions about spiritual experiences and belief in divine leading are rare in big epidemiological studies. So this is a great opportunity to add nuance to what we know about religion and mental health. Does organized religion contribute to depression? Well, along with the asking about their overall levels of religious faith and how often they usually attend religious services or pray, researchers, they also asked a series of questions intended to gauge just how much each person expected to experience in terms of tangible divine intervention and guidance during their lives. Well, a few of the questions and the statements uh, that were asked include, would you say you've been born again or have a born again experience? Uh, angels are present to help watch over me, agree or disagree. Uh, what uh, what seems to be coincidence in my life are not really coincidences. I am being led spiritually, agree or disagree. And did you ever have a religious or spiritual experience that changed your life? Now, these are interesting questions, and I think it tells us more about the researchers, perhaps, than the research itself. There's no question about, do you sense the work of the Holy Spirit promised by Jesus himself uh, to be given to every believer? And are you uh, seeking his guidance and will? Are you looking to his word to offer some direction and to uh, to clarify events that may be puzzling and, and challenging? Now, those are the kinds of questions I would think would be useful. But nonetheless, these are, as I mentioned, are the questions that are being asked. Well, as far as why beliefs in divine intervention and angelic protection seem to produce depressive feelings, eventually, the researchers say, they have two theories. The first is that people more prone to depression uh, begin with a more likely look for divine, uh, for the divine in the events of everyday life. That's why we need to be tutored by God's word and um, filled with his Holy Spirit. Kent, one of the researchers, asks, what if the religious environment or beliefs themselves are the source of depressive symptoms? Researchers define experience-driven religious environments as churches and other religious communities that normalize divine interactions and even tell parishioners to expect such experiences. Well, I think most average churches would encourage people to spend time in prayer, to spend time in God's word, to pursue a relationship with him, to understand God's character, um, to 
ask for through the fruit of the Spirit, the character of Christ to be manifested. I mean, there's a whole lot more to this than sitting in a pew in proximity with people with similar beliefs looking to angels to protect us. But it is an interesting bit of research, and I'm glad I found it. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll take a quick break, and we'll wrap things up. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. You're listening to the final segment of The Georgine Rice Show. I want to remind you that in response to church cancellations due to the coronavirus pandemic, 93.9 KPDQ has created a church service live streaming page at kpdq.com. It's got broadcasts of local church services. If you're looking to fellowship with others via on, uh, online or virtual, you'll be able to hear encouraging messages and worship from home with local live streams. And if you're like your church to be included, you can let us know by clicking the church service live stream banner on our website. Just visit kpdq.com or the KPDQ mobile app. One of the things I uh, hope to have time to talk about earlier in the program is why we are taught not to speak ill of the dead when public figures die. I mean, we need to be honest about who they were, but speaking ill of them seems to be quite something else. Uh, Jim Garrity, he points out that we used to widely honor the instruction to um, to not speak ill of the dead, at least in media and public communications, which with social media is a thing of the past. But in our era of social media, the instinct is largely the opposite. When a prominent political figure passes away, and I'm not distinguishing one side of the political spectrum to the other, but just someone prominent passes away, those who loathed the figure jump online and instantly proclaim how happy they are that the person died, how terrible the figure was, how they hope that figure is burning in hell, etc., now, one of the things that it reveals is you have no sense of um, the finality of death or perhaps understanding that at that point we stand before the God who is the ultimate judge, who understands every thought and deed and will judge fairly. Now, if we have embraced his son, there's that. If we have not, it's a very sobering thought to stand before God, perhaps believing we can justify ourselves by comparing ourselves to the person whose death we have just disparaged. But it will not be like that. The perfect judge in the courtroom, not of public opinion, where you're persuading the masses who themselves have fallen short of the glory of God, but a holy and just God himself who knows everything perfectly. Well, again, Garrity points out, you can find a lot of, of um, hackneyed columns disputing the old adage to not speak ill of the dead, particularly after the death of a prominent conservative with all the columnists convinced they've uh, discovered the amazing truth that indisputable villains of life die too, and no one would object to speaking ill of uh, you know certain figures. You've got Adolf Hitler. Well, the uh, aphorisms dating back to Greece in 600 BC and the modern advocates for speaking ill of the dead seem oddly confident that the ancient Greeks and Shakespeare and everyone else before them could not possibly have grasped the moral nuances of this uniquely modern circumstance of a controversial figure dying. Or they contend that holding one's tongue about the recent departed represents a compromise of the truth or an instruction to lie. But the aphorism bars one action. It does not compel other actions. It's not an instruction or requirement to praise the dead and certainly not one to bear false witness in praising the departed. Nor does the instruction forbid silence in response to the passing of a life. The American version of the custom really only asks people to refrain from ex uh, expressing their disdain for the departed in public 
for a short period of time after the death. No one really cares if you privately get grim satisfaction out of someone departing the earth. And there will be a few complaints if you uncork your long-simmering denunciatory diatribe about the departed a month later. And yet, for many figures, obscure and better known, the edict is just too much to ask. Now, the first argument put forth in defense of holding one's criticism of the recently departed is that the figure's loved ones are in mourning. Well, that's true, but we have no way of knowing in our, uh, in our, if our words rather will reach the ears or eyes of the mourning family and friends. So we feel a bit of freedom, I suppose, and that cannot be our sole uh, or deciding concern. Osama bin Laden, Abu Bakir Baghdadi, um, Timothy McVeigh, Samuel Little had uh, loved ones who mourned their deaths. Now, I suspect, and again, I'm quoting Jim Garrity now, I suspect the uh, saying is driven by a sense of universal empathy. The public figures you love and adore will die. The public figures you hate and detest will die. In their final moments, the differences between them will become quite insignificant. Few of us are likely to feel ready to die when our time comes. Few of us will believe in our final days that we live with no regrets. In our final moments, we're likely to feel vulnerable, frightened, and perhaps pained. Even the most uh, powerful dictator looks frail and weak and sad on his deathbed. Death humbles us all, and death comes to us all. Let me rephrase that. Death should humble us all. We have a hard enough time grappling with our own mortality, as is. It gets even tougher when a beloved or iconic figure who seems likely to be around forever, Alex Trebek, for example, shuffles off, uh, shuffles off rather this mortal coil. Recognizing the public figures we can't stand are human beings means recognizing that they're mortal, that they are as vulnerable to age and cancer and heart disease and other heart problems as anyone else. That is um, uh, one, one more stark reminder that our days are numbered as well. The powerful and wealthy and the famous may have the resources and good doctors to delay the Grim Reaper's arrival for a bit, but not to deny him. I like the observation in this editorial of the UK's Reform magazine, written after Margaret Thatcher passed away in 2013. It seems to me, they wrote at the time, that if we rail against someone while they live and change our tone when they die, we show respect not for them, but for death. Well, this powerful and divisive figure, the enemy within, can't be voted out or overthrown or even medicine and technology offer no lasting alternative to its regime. Despite the colossal changes to our moral landscape over the last 50 years and the death of deference toward traditional authorities and mores, our profound and ancient deference towards death is as alive as ever, presumably because it has as much power over us as it ever did. Well, the sadness and grief of one figure, most recently, Rush Limbaugh, agreed, disagreed, loved, or hated. Uh, his loved ones today are indistinguishable from the sadness and grief of Ruth Bader Ginsburg's loved ones in September, or John Lewis's loved ones, or Herman Cain's loved ones uh, in July. No matter how much we may think we are different from those we vehemently oppose, they are as human and mortal as we are. We are all going to end up in the same grave, ashes to ashes, dust to dust. Well, finally, there's the fact that the dead cannot speak for themselves and castigating the departed will often seem like an unfair attack and not just immediately after their passing. You may recall that in The Last Dance, the documentary about the glory years of Michael Jordan and the Chicago Bulls, former Bulls general manager Jerry Krause was consistently portrayed as a, a 
uh, bumbling, arrogant, fuming fool. The documentary featured recent interviews with Michael Jordan and almost all of his treatments and uh, uh, rather teammates and coaches. But Krauss passed away in 2017. It was an interesting uh, portrait of what I'm suggesting. Perhaps we should say that we should not speak ill of the dead because of the finality of death. It should mark the end of our disagreement with the department, uh, departed rather. If you read this uh, encounters uh, or uh, Ginsburg, John Conyers, Ted Kennedy, John Paul Stevens in recent years, they've gone to meet their creator now. Our argument with them is finished and perhaps being a bit more civil about it, being a bit more retrospective about our own lives and the end of our lives and what happens at that moment might be a wiser way of approaching those with whom we love, with whom we disagree, with those we're glad to see gone. Just a thought. Hey, we're out of time. James Blend is our producer, Clark Hilton engineer, Dan Rice. I want to thank him for the use of his office and thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at GRice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.